What is the psychological importance of leaving a legacy? Welcome to the Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. This episode is called Legacy. We're looking for an explanation for some seemingly ordinary aspects of our society, but that are strange to us as we examine them more closely. We want to look at our everyday society in terms of a social psychological perspective. We're going to play for you a recent conversation we had with Bruce Hirschfield. Prior to retiring, Bruce Hirschfield had a 30-year career in the financial services industry as an expert in life insurance. With professional designations including chartered life underwriter and accredited estate planner, his focus was on ultra-high net worth planning, philanthropic planning, business succession planning, deferred compensation, and qualified retirement programs. He has an economics degree from Rutgers University and a degree in project management from the University of New Haven. Here's the conversation with Bruce. Bruce, welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. Thanks very much. Looking forward to the conversation. Oh, it's great to have you. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Ken. Thanks for getting up so early in Los Angeles, California. Yeah, well, I'm up uh, about 4.30 on Los Angeles time, so it's not that big a deal for me. You're an early riser, so thank you for that. My pleasure. And I've got the great privilege of having really my two best friends in the world on the screen with me right now, and that never happens, so this is a marvelous, uh, marvelous turn for me. So Bruce knows tangentially about the work of Ernest Becker, because Steve and I have been working on that for 25 years or so, much longer for Steve, because he's much older than I am. And um, <laughs> would you get to the point, please, and not discuss my age? I'll try. Again? I'll try. Okay. So Becker is concerned with the human mortality and our terror of death, as is our friend Sheldon and terror management theory. And one day, Bruce and I were talking after we had done something on the podcast, and I was talking about that. And we were talking about Bruce's old job, because Bruce spent many years in the uh, estate planning business at the highest levels. And we talked about that in conjunction with life insurance, which it's closely related to. And we were talking about how that business is integrally tied in with human mortality and our fear of it, because just by the nature of what it is, if you are using Bruce's services, you are automatically in a state of what the terror management people call mortality salience, just by acknowledging the fact that you're going to need life insurance to protect your family in the event of an unplanned event, your own death, that they'll be provided for by some societal mechanism, which we call life insurance and how it naturally relates to the ideas of Ernest Becker. So great. Thanks, Ken. So Bruce, I guess the first question for our audience is what is life insurance? What is its purpose and its stated purpose and its unstated psychological purpose? Well, life insurance is a mechanism that in the event of a person's death, a benefit is paid. In general, its stated purpose is to indemnify the surviving parties to replace their uh, income or to make sure that certain events occur in the future. 
let's put it at the family level. Such events would be the event of a breadwinner. Uh, they have a um, desire and a dream of making sure the family that has been built up to that point is going to maintain that lifestyle that they've grown accustomed to and take care of future events such as college education and funeral expenses, maybe just building wealth in general. So that's in general what life insurance purpose is. Now, it's also used in a business environment and in an estate planning environment. As far as a psychological purpose, that gets a little bit into what I've always referred to, especially when speaking to those in the estate planning market, as being able to sell immortality. Because a lot of people, when you're in the high net worth environment, they have built an empire, albeit however small, wants to know that their vision that they had and have been enjoying is going to be continued in in perpetuity, ideally, not always possible, but that is their psychological desire. They, they know that they have had a lot of you know, trials and tribulations through their life, and they want to make sure that future generations can either avoid them or at least be able to cope with them in a better format or a better manner. It's bizarre to me, the whole life insurance, unstated psychological purpose. I understand if I'm alive, my spouse is alive, she's my primary beneficiary. If we both die and if our kids are young, then we want them to be taken care of. So you get term insurance and you take care of their growing up without you. But beyond that, I'm going to be dead. And I assume that when I'm dead, I'm not going to care. I assume if there's an afterlife, I'm going to be too busy frolicking with the angels. And if there's no afterlife, I'm absolutely not going to care. So it's all about the present, and it's all about my psychology in the present moment. Is, am I say, saying this incorrectly? Um, well, the latter part, the last thing you said sounds right. But when you said, when you're dead, I'm not going to care, you won't have the ability to care or not care because you're going to be dead. Right. <laughs> so uh, it's sort of a, a very strange way to look at things. Because the whole idea is that you know what it is for someone to no longer be there. And depending on your upbringing, you may know what it is to not have money to do things. And so that is going to be the driving decisions that's going to make you go forward with a purchase of life insurance. If the you know, kids, buy, But if it, the kids are young, I understand that. But if they're grown, as my kids are, what is this leaving them money going to do? They have their own careers. They have their own money. Mm -hmm. What's a couple thousand bucks, you know, more going to matter, you know, after I'm dead. Okay. We're, we're now hinging on two different things. There's wants and there's needs. Right. And I think up until this point, we've been mostly focusing on needs. Although when you when excuse me, when I spoke of estate planning and legacy planning, that get dives a little bit more into the want area. Okay. But you may want to leave money to your children. 
you may want to say at my death, I want a half a million dollars to go to each child and their family. You may want to say, I don't give a darn and not leave anything to them. And that may reflect on their opinion of you. (laughs) And possibly that may be the motivator to make sure something is left to them. So, all right. So thanks. Thanks, Bruce. That, I think that explains it. When we get to the legacy part, we'll we'll get into it a little bit more. Doesn't this doesn't this line of questioning deviate a little bit from the mortality idea of this? And it has more to do with, uh, I mean, to to just to reframe what Steve is saying, you care about your family now while you're alive, and I guess we're trying to imagine that you would still want to care about them after you're deceased and no longer have the capacity to care because the human animal is aware of its own mortality and the inevitability of its death. We can project into the future and say, when I'm dead, it's true that I won't care, but I do care now. So I can take steps to make sure that that caring transcends my life. That's that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Yeah. Just to address Steve's concern about actually caring when right, you're and, not and here anymore. Correct. And there are a lot of people that have Steve's attitude. Um, <laughs> not, and that, and I'm, because I'm not saying, you know, it's not an, an anomaly. It is people just say, hey, what the heck do I care? I'll be dead. Let them fend for themselves. And that's that's their decision. And that's fine. It doesn't necessarily go with the classic nuclear family, if you will where there's the connectivity that is established and the desire to maintain that going forward in the event of death. Because death's, death is an inevitability. It's an absolute. So if it is an absolute, then you need to plan for it. And life insurance is basically a bet against yourself because you know you're going to die. The question is when, and the insurance company says, well, we think you might be dying sooner. We hope you die late. But in the event you die young, we're going to pay a benefit. And you're saying, I hope I live old, but in the event I die young, my family is going to be made whole. Okay, so really- we're, we're, we're talking about how this relates to the human mortality fear of death. So that would tend to indicate that life insurance is different from fire or, say, flood insurance that doesn't involve death. Would that be accurate to say? Well, that's absolutely accurate to say. And life insurance is something that is really done for others, for sure. Whereas fire insurance can and oftentimes will include benefiting yourself in the event of uh, destruction. Because insurance in general is an indemnifier. So with fire insurance, in the event of a fire or theft insurance, in the event of someone stealing things, you're personally impacted. So you're making a decision saying, hey, I don't want to ruin my house. And assuming that you own the house and the mortgage company isn't forcing you to buy uh, some sort of uh, homeowner's insurance, you have to take care of that because, hey, not only is this for my family, but it's absolutely impacting my life. So I'm going to get some sort of coverage that will make me whole and allow my life to continue on and Etc., etc. But is there ego or status involved, like in choosing the amount of the life insurance? 
Oh, most definitely there's ego involved. And in some situations, especially when you get into the higher net worth environment, it's status. I've often cited these common things that happens when you get really wealthy guys inside the golf club and they're buying an Did you say <laughs> inside the golf club? Yeah. And the, so if they got these guys that are at the golf club and they're out there teeing off and they find out that their golfing buddy just bought a $20 million second to die life insurance policy. And I'll explain what that means in a moment. And they're sitting there going, I'll be damned if I'm not going to have a $20 million policy. And then he calls up his insurance and give me $25 million. I'm damned that guy's going <laughs> to out, outstatus me. And that happens. That has happened. Wow. I've had actually a couple of cases like that where in, over the years that had happened. So, but that's, um, that's a form of immortality as well. Your yes. status is a big part of your defense against death anxiety. Absolutely. In fact, if you look at some of these buildings that are named after people, now often it's named after people because they gave a donation right. during their lifetime. But there are times that wings of buildings, hospital, in fact, I did a lot of charitable planning where I say, you know, you are able to provide a wing to a hospital at your death. Isn't that a nice feeling to know that your name will live on in forever? Because you have funded this uh, wing of the hospital in your name through the use of a life insurance policy and a trust. And so that has a, a big impact on status. Well, I don't know if you can get much more uh, tangible immortality than that. Which is why we tend to carve those things into marble so that they'll last a lot longer than if you paint them on a on a. A board, on a board or a piece of paper. <laughs> well, I mean, if you want to take a quick aside into the life from the life insurance industry and look about what happened with the opioid addiction and the Sackler family, they were carved into sides of buildings, and now they're having to put those new marble in there to fill in those carvings. I had heard that. It's hilarious. So, Bruce, uh, we were talking before, and you had said a large part of Japanese culture is uh, based on shame. Or, yeah. or the avoidance of shame. Right. That's what motivates people. Is there an American equivalent to this tendency to want to avoid shame? I don't know if it's quite deeply in, embedded in our culture like it is in Japanese culture. I, I guess it goes back with a little bit towards that status element. And, and possibly uh, when you do a little legacy planning, when you have children or when you're not interested in having the children think ill of you, then there could be a little bit of that shame element come into play. How hmm. about key man insurance in the, in the corporate world? What's that about? Okay. So key man insurance is, it could be used in a couple different ways, but primarily it's used because the person who is contributing to the success of the company that can be measured in the form of profits. And so they're saying in the event of this person dying, the company will suffer a loss of profits. And it's truly recognized because the company has what's known as an insurable interest. That's a technical term, truly a technical term that's used in general whenever you buy life insurance. And it's sort of like, it's sort of like when the courts say, do you have standing in order to provide a suit? 
An insurable interest basically means that the beneficiary needs to be indemnified. Go back to that word, indemnified, in the event of this person's death. Now, in a family, the spouse, the children, the heirs, if you will, have an insurable interest. The business has an insurable interest. So recognizing that, the loss of profit from the death of that key person will be offset by a death benefit coming into the company. And that's what key man insurance is in general. But it's also quite an ego trip to say, well, you're the key man in this enterprise. And sure. you know, without you, we'd all fall apart. And so we have to insure you for $10 million. And the key man is going, well, I'm worth at least 20. Well, the insurance company, the underwriters will make a determination. If you're really going for big bucks, okay. you've got to prove that that is going to be an accurate figure. And okay. you can use future projections. So they will allow a formula to be used going forward. So this is far more rational and business-like in the corporate environment than the person insuring himself for the benefit of his family or so that they'll think better of him after he's dead. The, the key man insurance is a, it's a business need. Uh, it is a business need. And but I'm struck by the way you phrase that. It's you know, more business-like than when you're taking care of a family. I mean, I think- the He's same, saying there's, there's less emotion involved? Uh, okay. In that sense, that I can understand that. Right, that, that thank involved. you, Ken. That's what I meant. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's cut and dried. Yeah, it so, is very cut and dried. Going, going back to dollars, and forgive me for digressing a little bit here, just as far as talking about the value of human life when you get down to the cold, hard facts of it. The Reuters Foundation research shows that the United States frequently paid $2,500 in response to the death of a civilian killed by a U.S. military in Iraq and made payouts of around this amount in Afghanistan. In contrast, the U.S. government pays families of U.S. soldiers killed in those countries a death gratuity of $100,000. The $2,500 payout abroad is equivalent to just over twice the average annual income in Afghanistan. And the $100,000 that we pay here is just under twice the average income in the United States based on international monetary fund estimates. However, a low cost life insurance scheme for US service personnel pays up to $400,000 in addition to the death gratuity. And I've read that the statistical value of life is $10 million. How is the value of a life determined in your business? Well, in general, it goes, I think the formulation is, it's a similar formula, but there might be different factors. Or It's usually saying, how much does the person make? Let's go to the family level, and then we'll go to the business environment, and then you go to the estate planning environment. But let's, at the family level, how much are you making? What are your expenses? How many children do you have? How far are you from the children's education? How, what are the planning events that you might want to consider? How far are you from that? And then there's a multiple of that when you put it all together that says this is the amount of that's justifiable. And that's what the underwriter will say. In the business environment, basically the same idea. What is the future profits? What is this contribution? How much is the person's salary, et cetera, et cetera? And they'll put a multiplier 
on that. It might be a slightly different valuation and a different multiplier, but nonetheless, it's basically the same kind of analysis. Estate planning would be what's the net worth of your estate today? What is the projected growth of that under reasonable expectations? And what may be the taxation of uh, estate tax? Because in the event of death, when you pass assets between parties, other than a spouse, there's a potential of an estate tax. There's an exemption of that, that amount above a certain level, which although I don't remember the exact figures in today's market, but it's probably about 12 or $13 million per person today. Each person is allowed to bequeath $13 million to anyone other than their spouse and without incurring an estate tax. Anything above that number is subject to an estate tax. I think it starts at 35%, but quickly rises to 50%. And then if you skip a generation, in the estate planning market, it's a double taxation they call the generation skipping uh, tax, which is basically the it, they double they double the uh, taxation. So is, tax. this, is, is this what we're quibbling about when we're talking about when the Republicans talk about a death tax? Did, did I talk about a death you? tax? And the people who are subjected to a death tax is not only the one percenters; it's the one tenth of the one percenters. How is many you, people you, in a population have an estate in excess? Of twelve or thirteen million dollars, and if you're and if you're, let me finish. If you're a yeah. married couple, you get to use it two times. So now, if you're a married couple, you're able to pass wealth of twenty five million dollars with no estate tax to your heirs. So, how many people in the United States? How many family units in the United States have wealth in excess of twenty five million dollars? Well, and I was just going to say that's what we're complaining about. You, you already under law get a free pass. Here's thirteen million. I mean, for most people, you would think that might be enough or close to enough. That's the thorn in the paw. That's the thorn in the paw. Yep, the thorn in the paw. But what we're saying here is there is a value placed on a human life. Yes. Colloquially, normally people say, oh, you know, a human life can't be valued in terms of money. But juries do it all the time. Of course. And the government does it. And the government does it in terms of people that they kill, like, you know, in war, civilian collateral damage. And then here we are talking about, oh, putting a value on your present, but the government's calculating two years annual income, which hardly covers your kids going to college and and things like that. So this is very complicated. Well, it doesn't sound what rational I, to me at all. Well, insuring an individual family without hardly any problem, you could take your income and multiply it by 10 and get that amount as a death benefit you purchase. So well, that's making a hundred thousand dollars income 10 years from now is going to be. Well, no, it's because you, well, let's, well, no, let's say you're making a hundred thousand dollars today and you want to go into underwrite for a life insurance policy. I don't see many insurance companies denying you getting a million-dollar life insurance policy at all, 10 times that annual income. Right. That's the rational part. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is this all sounds very irrational to me when I'm thinking about I'm going to be dead and I'm not going to know any of what's going on here. We're talking about how I feel about myself, how I feel about what I'm doing here, purchasing this life insurance, 
whatever mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about how I feel about it as the, the reason for doing it, the justification mm-hmm. for doing it, we've abandoned all this actuarial statistical analysis. And now we're into, well, how do you feel, Steve? Well, I think I'm worth $50 million. Well, you know, well, let's, let's write up that policy. It's just, there's something very strange to me about this. It's not like fire insurance at all because I'm uh, going to be dead. Right. And for our purposes of our discussions, the I don't care because I'll be dead should be removed from the conversation in the candor because, well, let's go back to what you're saying, I feel. As you were saying that, I was remembering when I sat down the day before my birthday, when my second child had just been born and running a life insurance policy in my own life. And I remember submitting it into the, uh, to be underwritten. And that whole day, I felt like a, a weight was lifted off my shoulders and I felt terrific. It wasn't how much I bought it for. It was the fact that I took responsibility and took care of business, took care of being a bench in, in the words of the wisdom of Jews, to be a good person, to do the right thing. And that's, that's what the feeling I had. Do I feel I have, I'm worth $50 billion? That's your ego talking, yeah, unless you truly are worth $50 million. But if you're not worth $50 million, now it's your ego talking. All right. I'm not phrasing this correctly. So let me, okay. let me take another shot at this, okay? Sure. That feeling of being a mensch, of that feeling uh, I've done the right thing, that is a defense against death anxiety. And when Ken brought up before mm-hmm. the whole mortality salience, idea mm-hmm. by even thinking about life insurance which will pay money after i'm dead i'm mm-hmm. thinking about being dead so now okay. as i'm thinking about being dead mm-hmm. this idea of being a mensch is a defense against the anxiety the dread of dying so okay. So that's what I'm saying. There's an irrational. That makes sense. But that makes sense this. to me. Okay. I don't see that as irrational at all. That makes perfect sense to me. Say that again. It makes perfect sense to me what you just described. Okay. Saying the feeling of being a mensch offsets the death anxiety right. feeling. That makes perfect sense to me. Right. So you're in a weird loop at that point, a psychological loop, because on the one hand, you're saying, oh my God, I'm going to die consciously thinking I'm going to die. Then you may put that out of your head or it might just, now you've changed the subject, but it's still there. Mm-hmm. It's still, your, your unconscious is still processing it. That's what they mm-hmm. mean by mortality salience. Now it's not front of mind, but it's back of mind, but it's still there. So then you're thinking about your kids and you're thinking about your legacy, the way people think about you, your reputation. And those things become amplified by this mortality salience in the back of your mind. That's why I'm saying this sounds irrational to me because you're in a loop of, oh, I'm going to die. Therefore, I should have life insurance. Oh, I'm thinking about dying. 
therefore I should you see it's like there's okay. this this yeah. it's like a feedback of feedback death, loop. feedback which is what driving saying. what's going on here I think it's um, important to say that it's that's part of what's going on okay yes. I don't think you can reduce the thing a hundred percent to death anxiety no no I'm, and I think I'm, there's still such a thing as a mensch no no and there is such a thing as the analysis the financial and statistical analysis that Bruce is talking about. And certainly on the corporate level, it's much more cut and dried, right? Because the board of directors is saying, well, let's make a calculus here. Whereas when it's you thinking about your own life, your own family, your own death, it still has practical implications. Certainly. Like I said, when my kids were young, my wife and I were saying, well, how much insurance can we afford and how much insurance do we need if we both die at the same time, like we're in a car crash or something like that, the kids need to be cared for in some way, financially. So there's that. There is that practical part of this. Mm-hmm. But the very fact that you're thinking about you're both going to be dead <laughs> I mean, your unconscious has to deal with that, has to process that. And the decisions you're making are being affected by that. It's like if you're in a jury and it's a a murder case and they hold up pictures of this mutilated corpse and everybody goes, oh, oh, you know, recoils in horror. Well, that's a trick. The prosecutor is manipulating you right at that point right so that's what i'm saying this is to me that's involved you're right it can it's not all it's not the whole story but there's something about this that just is not like fire insurance at all it's not like flood insurance it's like like you say your death is inevitable right you can't ensure that you're not going to die not yet, maybe someday. Maybe <laughs> yeah, maybe. It, may, it may be right around the corner if you listen to Malcolm Gladwell. So, and- Jeff Bezos yeah. is working on that, believe me. So, yeah. Steve, I'd like to ask you a question. When you and your wife were discussing and thinking about purchasing insurance, did how much you want to leave your children ever enter the discussion? Yeah, I mean, we we tried to figure what they would ultimately need if Need, you know in the short term you know what not, about, not forever but what but, about did you want did you have the feeling of i want to leave this to them Iris, not a need analysis but a want analysis well i i think it's more like you as a parent are obliged to feed your kids every day sometimes more than once a day although up to a, up it, to a certain age yeah. Okay, it became, a, it became a pattern. Here's a question. Here's a question. All your, all your, all your children now are grown. But now they're and, now they're grown, and and they can, and they're more than taking care of themselves. Right. So right. that initial thing that you and Goldie discussed about taking care of them is really moot at this point. Right. And I mean, other than having enough to take care of your final expenses, I mean, do you really need life insurance? Because as Bruce is trying to make a distinction between need and want, right. You know, on your passing, you know, they're all going to be grief stricken. And is it, are they going to be slightly less grief stricken if a, if a, a state court 
hands them a large check and says, here, I know you're upset about your parents, but here's a whole boatload of money. Take a vacation. I don't know if that's going to impact their grief strickenness. Well, but this gets back to want. Do you, I mean, you, you, want want them, say, you want I, them to think well of you. And you want them to be, not only think well of you, but you have a, a, a the, a, being a parent never ends. You could be 90 years old and you're still a parent of your child. And that parental feeling still exists. And you still, all, at least for me, I still want to do as much as I can for my children. And I may or may not be able to afford to do as much as I want for my children, but I still want to do something for them. So that enters the, into the decision process, at least for me, and I think for many other people, going into that wants. I mean, I, I going back to that purchase of that policy when my second child was born, I wanted to leave a little bit more than I probably needed to. And I chose to do that because it made me feel a little bit better and also made me say, you know what, this will really set them up a little bit better just a little bit better and that that make their life a little bit easier. Not so much my ego saying, oh, dad was a great guy. He left us that big fat check. No, it was that just, it really showed that he cared to, to about us or something like that. I don't, but anyway. Will you uh, care that, about me and Steve? Are you going to leave us some kind of a check? Yeah, I was just for, thinking about that. Come on. I'm feeling really overlooked here. Well, we'll go back to insurable interest. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Neither of you have an insurable interest in me. And how about grandchildren? Is uh, there a difference between the way some people, many people think about leaving money to their children and then leaving money to their grandchildren or beyond grandchildren, great grandchildren, whatever? Sure, sure. So uh, a couple things come to mind. First of all, especially when I'm sitting down with a doing an estate plan. Those who have substantial means, they oftentimes sit down, sometimes reluctantly, but oftentimes they sit down with the idea of leaving something for their heirs and making sure the empire they built is going to be maintained and passed on in a very orderly manner. When talking about the children, it's not unusual for them to say, oh, the kids, but when Suja mentioned the grandchildren. Oh, the grandchildren. Oh, so that's the emotional element that comes out. As far as legacy is planning, um, there are, well, there's a couple of things I should talk about. When you do uh, a state plan, you have, oftentimes you're using trusts. And trust is a way of holding the policy. And if you have what's known as an irrevocable trust, meaning the trust is completely out of your hands, and it's irrevocably out of your hands, could never come back to you, then it's deemed to be outside your taxable estate. But then there are rules against having perpetual trusts, meaning at some point the trust has to end, except if you have the trust domiciled in certain states, then you can have a perpetual trust. And that's when you can talk about legacy planning to the kids, the grandkids, the unborn, great-grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera. Let's talk about that after the break. Folks, we've been talking with Bruce Hirschfield about insurance, and now we're going to get into legacy and estates. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
We're having a conversation with Bruce Hirschfield about mortality and life insurance. And now we're going to talk about estates and legacy planning and things like that. Bruce, this is this is really interesting to me. I don't know if anybody else cares, but I find this really interesting. Well, it's interesting that you should say that because whenever you're in a party, you say, what do you do? And as soon as you mention life insurance, the crowd turns away and runs <laughs> they're, they're, They gloss over. Their eyes go glassy. Good right? way to clear a room. Yes, <laughs> yes. The guests have overstayed their welcome. Well, let's now talk about life Wow, insurance. look at the time. We really need to get going. <laughs> oh, so estate planning and legacy planning and trusts, what are they and, and how are they different from one another? Well, they are actually, I don't know if they're necessarily different from one another. They're sort of all part of the same thing. A trust is a tool in our toolkit to help pass on the wealth in its most effective way. So when you talk about trusts, we spoke about irrevocable trusts before. There are revocable trusts. And a revocable trust means you still can reach it. You, the person creating the trust, can still reach the trust. And therefore, it's included in your taxable estate. It's as if you own it. The benefit of having a revocable trust is that the assets that are inside that trust don't pass through the probate system. When you die, there's three ways assets pass. One, by function of law. Two, through by beneficiary. And three, everything else that falls into the probate system. And that goes through your will. And if you don't have a will, then you go to the intestate laws of the state that you die in. So if you have a house that's jointly owned with your spouse, that's function of law, joint ownership, tenant right to survivorship, joint tenancy right to survivorship. That asset will pass directly to your spouse. Doesn't matter what the will says, it's going to happen no matter what functional law comes in and takes over. If you have a beneficiary of a life insurance policy, that goes directly to the beneficiaries without going through the the will. So you could say, I leave $200,000 of my death benefit to my my mistress in your will, but the beneficiary is only lined up to leave 100% to your family. It doesn't matter what the will says. It's the beneficiary designation on the policy that happens. And then anything anything else that's left over goes through the will. So- a trust, that's a revocable trust, passes by beneficiary. So you avoid having the assets go through the court system. And it helps keep your affairs somewhat private. So that's the benefit of having a revocable trust. You, you could do certain things with inside there that you can't necessarily, well, you could probably do about the same things in a will that you can do in a trust, but it's all laid out perfectly and you can manage that during your lifetime. An irrevocable trust is used at this, oftentimes used in an estate planning situation. And that's because it's outside your taxable estate. So if you say, I got a $50 million estate, I don't want to, I know I'm going to be subjected to $20 million of uh, estate taxes. I want to have $20 million inside an irrevocable trust. So it passes outside the estate. So you have the policy owned, the policy is owned by the irrevocable trust. Just thinking about the word legacy Mm -hmm. and the word estate. Yeah. You're talking about what's going to happen after I'm dead. My legacy, okay. right? Okay. My, I'm very bad at quotes, but I remember from high school Latin that I think it was 
Caesar said, it's all about glory. And the Latin term gloria, it includes this idea of your legacy, what lives on after you. They were all Mm -hmm. carving each other in marble, statues meant to last thousands of years, which they did, by the way. So this idea that my legacy is vitally important to me. And from a Becker standpoint, we look at it and say, well, why? Why is your legacy important when you're going to be dead and you're not going to care? Like you said, you name your mistress in the will. Well, mm-hmm. hopefully no one reads that until after you're dead. And then you don't care. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, Sally's getting her million. That's great. You know, and everybody in the, in the family is up in arms. How dare he? But they, you know, yeah, you're gone. You don't care. Getting back to the same, the same notion, legacy and estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, when I hear it, I say this is a defense against death anxiety. This legacy is a, planning is a defense against death anxiety. It's an immortality project. Right. Yeah. Which Absolutely. Yeah. So again, this is to me not rational. Well, you're feeding someone's ego. People purchase life insurance for a love of something. People do legacy planning for a love of something. Okay. And oftentimes it's a love of others, but oftentimes it's a love of yourself. <laughs> and it's an ego. It's an ego thing. Yeah. Goes yeah. back to that discussion that I had earlier about the golf guys on the golf club on the golf course. You know, I'll be darned if I'm going to have a less uh, a lower death benefit than my uh, golfing buddy. It's right. an ego-driven decision, and legacy planning oftentimes is ego-driven. Not always, but oftentimes it is. So that goes, I think, ties right in with your your death anxiety, right? Does right. isn't your isn't it your ego? That's that is being challenged with death anxiety, and this is a way to offset it. Your self-esteem, according to Becker, your self-esteem is a primary defense against death anxiety. Okay. The problem that we have talked about, Ken and I and, and others have talked about, is self-esteem on steroids or the lack of self-esteem, but this need for self-esteem on steroids becomes narcissism. And we're in an age of narcissism. We sure are. Of multi-billionaires rocketing into space with Captain Kirk for they're claiming business reasons, but we're looking at it going, yeah, come on. Yeah, there's a lot of ego there. A lot. And so we, in our discussions, and you and and actually you were in the room at the time when we were talking to Sheldon Solomon, and we were talking about humility and gratitude. Right. And like as antidotes to narcissism, well, humility, it's being studied, and the studies so far have indicated that humility is a a defense, a viable defense against death anxiety. You can be humble and have self-esteem, obviously, but but not self-esteem on steroids. I I wonder if the Buddhists have the same death anxiety issues, because they are very humble. They walk very humbly through life. Yeah, but they're immortal. They're not going to die. The Buddhists are going to be reborn. They're going to come back, reincarnation. 
which, which does which does say what I believe it does have that effect to an extent, right? We we know a guy in Becker Foundation, uh, David Loy, yeah, who I think has done research, and and Buddhists I think are less prone than we are because of that belief to death anxiety traps. Yeah, I I don't know. I know David Loy, and I, I know what you're talking about, but I don't. I never heard that one, but that's okay. very possible. It's very possible. Religion, whatever, Buddhism is a very different kind of religion. It's more like a philosophy than, but it does have that immortality belief, mm-hmm. that reincarnation belief built into it. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. That's a tough one. I'd like to go back just for yeah. a second one, because Bruce was talking about irrevocable trusts, and he said kind of, surreptitiously it's basically a way to beat taxes specifically what the republicans would call the death tax mm-hmm. yeah I, I think i think a lot of people listening to this let's say probably most people certainly everyone i know when you get into the kind of numbers that bruce was dealing with and uh, jeff bezos type numbers there'd be a tendency of people to look at society and say really You've got all this, and you're going to leave all this to your heirs, and you're telling us that you can't afford to peel off this number of millions to help the society in general? Isn't there going to be a certain amount of resentment with a lot of our listeners, probably? I realize, Bruce, you lived in that, you lived in that world, and people feel that I made this. It's mine, and yep. nobody is going to tell me what to do with my stuff that I made. So mm-hmm. if I can come up with a legal way of mm-hmm. not having the mm-hmm. society, the government mm-hmm. uh, leverage a portion of my wealth that I made out mm-hmm. of my hands and out basically out of my children's mouths, if you want to look at it that way, mm-hmm. I think we're in such different worlds here. I think it would be very difficult to get a general consensus from people when you're talking about this kind of wealth and these kind of numbers. We're basically talking about your children's 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 children are never going to have to work a day in their lives, right? When you get to certain numbers. When absolutely. you get to certain numbers, we're talking about three, four hundred years down the road, nobody's not going to be rich. And we have that now since the Industrial Revolution and the giant families, Johnson and Johnson. And I mean, Rockefellers, Rockefellers, none of those people are ever going to work a day, not a day. They don't have to work a day. They don't have to work. And they choose to work a day and they fly private. Right. Which is I was speaking with someone the other day who said that was the moment where we lost the person. If you want to know a threshold where it becomes truly obscene and evil, it's when they started flying private. Mm -hmm. They no longer have to deal with the rest of humanity in those pesky airport lines and Mm -hmm. be searched by anybody. They're getting on their own aircraft. Mm -hmm. It's all they're up to them. And a lot of times they pay a huge fee and the airport shuts down. Basically, the other planes circle while they land. Mm -hmm. And this is a hundreds of people are circling overhead. So one guy and his family don't miss their tea off time. At the same time, you've got 550,000 homeless people in America. Right. And you have cities like San Francisco that, especially on the West Coast out there where you are, Bruce, 
where it's spring all the time, you don't have the problems you have being homeless in New York where you could freeze to death. Out there, it's life at the beach. And you've got a city like San Francisco, which has incredible wealth. And people complain, oh, we've got all these homeless people. They're pitching tents. They're defecating in the street. This is horrible. You know, they're shoplifting, all this stuff. And you say, yeah, but are you building homeless shelters or are you building yet another McMansion? Are you doing anything to provide work opportunities for these hundreds of thousands of homeless people? Or are you buying a $500 million yacht like Jeff Bezos? I would love to know if he's writing that off as a business expense, but that's just, you know, me. You know, he, you know, he is. <laughs> well, the rocket company is as a business. There you go. So the question, I guess, is, are we now in another gilded age? You mentioned Rockefeller, I guess, Getty, you know, all of those. How are our wealthiest different from the Vanderbilts and the Astors of the 19th century? I don't think they're much different. To be candid with you, they're just more of them. <laughs> and the more noticeable yeah. and the more in your face. And people said people said that could never happen again, regardless of how you feel about taxes, because of the institution of the income tax, the progressive well, or regressive income tax system. But we've gotten around that now. There was a time where Vanderbilt level people paid 70% of their they paid 70% of their income in taxes. Oh, 90%. 90%. Sure. And they still lived a perfectly dandy life on the sure. 10% that remained. Well, but it was 90% of the last dollars they made. It was a very progressive tax structure. So I, I don't know the numbers, but you paid a certain amount up to, uh, you know, and as you made a million, two, three, five million, whatever it was. But once you're over a certain dollar amount and you're in the millions, then it's 10 cents on the dollar you keep. But you've also had a lot of money up until that point that you were able to keep. Yeah, Socrates yeah. is supposed to have said the displaying of wealth should be done virtuously. A wealthy man, to be admired, should contribute to public works and communal feasts. Brash, undirected luxury is immoral. It has no social use. But what do we have today? Is displaying of wealth more like the virtuous or the less virtuous kind? That's a silly question. It just seems that it's not virtuous. I think Socrates would be appalled at what we're now about. And I think what we've been talking about in terms of estate and legacy, it in some ways is un-American. It's the antithesis of democracy. It's another aristocracy. We're creating new royal families. Well, I just did a little research. And in 2020, there were 214,000 households with net worth in excess of $25 million. 214,000 households. Wow. And I use 25 million because that's basically the number that a husband and wife can leave to their heirs without an estate tax. Now, it might be a little bit higher, but we're, we're in that ballpark. Versus 123.6 million households in the U.S. So you're talking about 0.1 tenth, one tenth of 
of households are going to be subjected to an estate tax. And look at all the noise that's being made about it. Mm. Right. Wow. 214,000 families. That's that's it. That's, that's it. almost none. I mean, that's almost one, none. one tenth of one percent. You can't even graph that on a pie chart. Right. You can't see it. You can't draw a line thin enough. Right. Because they have so, the power to make noise of course, about it. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Of course. And because they are the people in the media, right. in the corporate media. They own the corporate media. Yeah. When somebody like Elizabeth Warren goes on Rachel Maddow and says, well, we have to tax the wealthy. And Rachel Maddow gulps because uh, um, she's worth $22 million. I hope she doesn't mind that she'd be taxed <laughs> at her death. Yeah. Hopefully. I hope she well, I think, I think a lot, I mean, just, just working at the low level that I've always worked at, I remember once you passed January 1st and you're thinking about your taxes, it seems to be kind of a game that we play, that people play. And the goal is to pay as few taxes as possible. Sure. But that's and legal. It, but that's well, it's, the, yeah, but it's legal, but it used to be, I saw someone talking about capitalism 50 years ago, and I think it was General Electric. Right. I would do your talking about that. Yeah. I saw a video where they said it was Jack Welsh who ruined America because he's the one who said, you know, 50 years ago in their, the okay. annual report listed all the things they're doing and things they do for their employees. And it also mentioned taxes. And said, we, we pay our taxes proudly. Right. Right. Proudly. Proudly. Can, can you imagine anybody today saying something like that? Noam Chomsky feels April 15th should be a celebration. You're right. When all of us come together as a country and unite. Yep. And say, we're here we are together as a society and helping us, helping the whole. That's it's an a, interesting perspective. That's See, that's a lovely, libertarians that's a lo- and they just scoff. Libertarians. That's a lovely thought. Honestly, yeah. that's a lovely thought. Sure. Could we circle back to something that you mentioned in passing, but the will, the which will. to me is an amazing word. Yeah. The will of the dead person is right. honored. The last will and testament. Right. This is the last thing I get to say, and it's my will, my desire. Yeah. It's held very, very high in the courts, very, very high. If someone wants to challenge it, they got to have real strong evidence not to have that will executed as written. Because the person is no longer here to defend him or herself. That, that is primarily the reason. And of sound mind is oftentimes one of the early clauses of that. Being of sound mind, I hereby state the following. Oh, that, becomes, will, that becomes a point of contention, right? The sound, the well, sound mind part. He was drinking. He was drinking every day, and he didn't have sound mind for the last ten years. Well, let let them contest, but the point being is that that is one's ability to say, "This is what I have, and this is how I want to leave it." And but it's I guess my it, legacy. But the question is why? Yeah, legacy. Why is it so sacrosanct in the eyes of the court and society and the and the lawmakers? Well, it's. The courts prefer to have wills than not have wills. And if you don't have a will, that's what the intestate laws are about. They don't like having orphans because they don't want to have children wards of the state. They want to make sure that they're settled in families and they'll they'll go to great pains to avoid it becoming 
a ward of the state. So it's the same thing. We want to make sure that whatever this person's accumulations are over, over their lifetime is being passed in a properly orderly manner. Wills are something that a lot of people get freaked out over. There are certain cultures that said, I am not going to talk about having a will because that's an admission of death. And if, if I'm admitting I'm going to die, I will die. So if I don't do the will, it allows me to keep that out of my frame of mind. And I'm going to be able to live longer. And if anything, if you have a will, it's going to give you peace of mind and allow you to live longer life because you don't have the anxiety associated with dying because you say, okay, if I die, I die, but at least I know I'm taking care of business. Yeah. You don't want it to go in probate court and then the lawyers get all the money and, and all of that, but it's just the concept of will, mm-hmm. my intent, my will is not to be contested or dismissed no matter what your status is, you can mm-hmm. have no money, but you can leave a will saying, well, I want my cat to be cared for or the statue that I always loved. I want that to go to my great granddaughter. You know, th- those kinds of things is beyond money. A lot of it is mm-hmm. just very strange demands mm-hmm. yeah. that you're making yeah. from the grave. Uh, yes, you are. <laughs> right? I mean, you're six I mean, feet under. And you're telling them what to do with the cat and the statue. <laughs> yeah. Yep. What was it? Helmsley, the one who owned the Empire State Building. Did she had something with her dog, I believe. They left a big <laughs> didn't fat her, didn't, her dog. Yeah, didn't her dog have an incredible amount of wealth? You're right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Huge amounts to take care of the dog. I mean, I remember having a few cases that I worked on where that family, they wanted to have a certain trust set aside for the benefit of their pets. <sighs> Wow. And then what someone from the court has to go and check on that and make sure that there's someone periodically go and make sure they're not kicking the dog, but they're in fact giving it silk well, pillows. Well, she's ch- changing its bed every night. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. And it's done in, and you do it in the form of a trust. And then there's a, there's a person assigned to the trust. The trustee is the fiduciary responsibility and all that stuff. And if, and if you can prove to the courts that this fiduciary who's supposed to take care of the dog is not doing their job, they'll kick the fiduciary Get another one. out. Yeah. Oh my. It's, and it's, meanwhile, we were, we were going to ask one of our last questions, how much yeah. of this is irrational. I think we've pretty thoroughly covered that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I guess we often close with the question, where is there hope? But I don't even know that's a relevant question in this case, Ken. Or what do you- uh, no, well, it, it, this is just a very interesting aspect, angle on the subject that you and I mostly talk about with people. And it's like you and I said before we started recording, not something I'd ever really thought about. And I don't think most people do think about it. Oh, wow, I never thought of that. Yeah. You know, th- these thoughts are just not in most people's heads. But obviously, people in the industry, like Bruce, they were the front and center of their thoughts. And sure. If I can go back to one of your earlier yeah. comments, Steve, yeah. you talked about getting term insurance. Yeah. Term insurance is pure death benefits. So it's like no value to you. You can get a permanent policy that does have living benefits for you that you can take care of your old age. Right. Costs a so lot. So that, that's a way to you know say, hey, I can sort out my cake and eat it too. I think what we've touched on here is this whole idea of this new gilded age that we're in and this 
legacy and estate planning where you're talking about massive amounts of money that are not taxed when they're inherited. And they found ways to get around the estate tax by making trusts and making all these other tools at their disposal to avoid paying the tax. And so, therefore, as Ken says, you've got generations of people who are billionaires just by virtue of having been born. They've done nothing else to earn it. This whole American dream thing goes right out the window, and we're back to medieval royalty. And this is all predicated on our society allowing, even encouraging, lavish immortality projects that have no social value. We are suffering from massive economic inequality, and this is part of the picture. To get back on the insanity portion, um, it's not quite (laughs) insanity, but I think it's an interesting aspect of, you may see advertised on television from time to time, do you have a life insurance policy that you no longer need? Mm. Would you be interested in having your policy convert to cash that you could use while you retire? Come join us. (laughs) Oh, I've seen that. Oh, and they're going to get paid when you die. And they're going to give you some money now. Not right. the same amount of money that you were going to get because they're going to take a little extra right. for their trouble, right? Right, oh. correct. That's a whole industry. Oh, it is. It's called viatical. It says viatical insurance. And there are companies on Wall Street that they have hedge fund type companies on Wall Street that put in money to buy these policies. And a lot of times these policies are sold. I sell my policy to these companies because I may be sick. And if I have a life expectancy that's maybe under five years, and they'll underwrite me to determine that, even if I have a term insurance policy, they'll give me some money. And now I could use that for the last years of my life. And there are Wall Street companies that are coming there and they'll give you money and continue to pay the insurance policy and still give you money because they know that that from an economic perspective is a great deal, a great deal. For them. For them. Well, it's a good deal for you if you need the cash. If you need the cash, of course, of course. But so that's you know that's but it's, but it's a little bizarre, isn't it? It's yes. bizarre world, but nonetheless, yes. it exists. Wow, it exists, and it's a service that I guess people want. In fact, I know they want. Yeah, and I love the way you did that commercial. It was just you know like <laughs> I thought <laughs> it was watching late night yeah, TV. I, I almost got you sold on it, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Bruce, thank you. This has been a great great. talk. Oh, great. Folks, we've been talking with Bruce Hirschfield, who has 30 years experience in this industry, and he has been schooling us. And we have been discussing the rationality and irrationality of estates and, and legacy and insurance and wills. And Bruce, thank you for a terrific conversation. We really enjoyed it. My pleasure. It's been nothing but an enjoyable experience to work with you folks. Thank you. Super. Thank you, Thanks, Bruce. We've been talking with expert Bruce Hirschfield about life insurance, legacy and estate planning, wills, and related subjects. Steve, what's your takeaway? Well, I think we answered our question, how much of all this is irrational. From one point of view, it all makes sense. But from a Becker perspective, immortality projects are everywhere you look. There's an entire multi-billion dollar industry built around the notion that we are rationally planning for our own deaths when much of it is serving the purpose of our 
irrationally defending against death anxiety. Is that news to us? (laughs) I guess not. Well, thank you, Bruce, for your many insights. And important ideas. Important ideas like always. Folks, join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. Email your feedback or leave a comment or an Apple Podcast review. Let us know what you want and how we can improve. Become a part of our community of people who value these important ideas. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com front slash the hub important ideas. We are 100% listener supported. And please check out our award-winning documentary video series, Conversations with Solomon, Exploring Human Motivation, on YouTube. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. This has been a Contemporary Heroism Initiative production.